This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome, guys, to episode 261 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and I'm very excited to bring to you this week, James Wilkes. Now, I sat down with James in California. He is a lifelong martial artist. He won the Ultimate Fighter television show for Team UK. He trains some of the most elite law enforcement and military personnel in combatives. And he's also the man behind the movie The Game Changers. So great conversation. We really explore so many of the benefits that I have seen personally from a plant-based diet. This doesn't mean a purely vegan diet, but either removing meat temporarily or increasing the amount of plant-based food in your diet versus processed and all the chemicals and hormones and things that we see. So a great conversation. I really enjoyed picking his brain. So before we get to the interview, please take a moment, go to the podcast app that you're listening to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, um, and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings do make us more and more visible to other people looking for a project like this. And then use your social media, email, word of mouth, whatever it is, and help share these incredible episodes. There's so much information in each one of these people's stories that I know will change lives around the planet. So with that being said, I introduce to you James Wilkes. Enjoy. James, I want to start by saying thank you so much for inviting me here to your office. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's exciting to uh, be talking with you. 
Brilliant. So for everyone listening, where are we right now geographically? So we're in Laguna Hills, California. And uh, so that's about an hour south of LA, about an hour north of San Diego on the west coast of the United States and uh, moved here, what, uh, 19 years ago now. Brilliant. Let's start with that. I mean, I'm going to go chronologically, but what, what brought you here specifically? Originally came out here in 2000 after I finished my degree. Um, thought I'd take six months to uh, train in martial arts, some more martial arts. You know, I had always been training for years in martial arts, but came out to train with Paul Vunak, who developed the unarmed combat program for the Navy SEALs, called the Rapid Assault Tactics. So I thought, well, I finished my degree, I'll, I'll come out to the States and train for six months. Then I'll come back and, and get a job in London or whatever. And uh, love the weather, love the martial arts training, and uh, I'm still here 19 years later. And was it California you came to initially? Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul Vinette lived in Orange County, so that's sort of why I'm still here. Brilliant. All right, well, I want to you talk about the military, so let's start at the very beginning, even before you were born. I know your granddad was a bit of a badass, so let's start with him and then we'll work forward. So yeah, tell me about so, him. so allegedly he basically um, faked his birth certificate so that he could um, fight in World War II. So he was around uh, f- around 14 or 15 and uh, really wanted to join the war. You know, so faked his birth certificate and then was, uh, you know, parachuted in, fought in Arnhem. Um, most of the people that he was fighting alongside were killed and somehow he tried, it seemed to like dive into a river and, and swim down and got away and survived. And so after he got out of uh, the after World War Two finished, he sort of still had that fighting uh, spirit. So he used to you know go to the pubs and, and get in fights and that sort of thing. And then it sort of from there, you know, he had two sons. One is my dad, Gary, uh, who's been a big inspiration for me, and the other one is my uncle, Mark. And Mark went on to become a very high sort of uh, ranked Kikushinkai karate fighter. Uh, he ended up in 1986. He got the fastest knockdown. It was like four point something seconds with a spinning uh, hook kick to the temple knocked the guy out um, and won some big fight there. But And then my dad was into Kung Fu. And um, so they sort of got me into, I think it's in the blood basically. And then they got me into, you know, martial arts from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So firstly, 14 years old, volunteering to do that. That's insane in itself. But yeah. um, it's interesting you say he came back and he was fighting because that's what I think our generation was kind of told about our forefathers and why I think there was so much violence around football and all that was that we are kind of a, a warring nation. And once World War II was done, I mean, we had the, the Falklands conflict, but that was it. Yeah. That there was no one to fight. So I know when I grew up, I mean, you know, the, some of the violence in, in the soccer stands was just insane. But uh, it's interesting observation that we kind of were a very feisty group <laughs> as yeah, a nation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of, uh, around soccer, there's a lot of sort of tribal mentality too. And it sort of uh, reinforces sort of us versus them mentality. But yeah, it's quite warlike. Yeah. Now, um, I always ask the people that have got World War II generation in their family because it's fascinating. Did your granddad ever talk about the war? I don't really have many memories of it um, because he died when I was quite young of a heart attack, unfortunately. He was a big smoker and that probably played a big uh, role in that as well. Um but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really talk about it. My other grandfather talked about it a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, anytime I talked about guns or fighting, he really didn't, I mean, my other grandfather, my uh, mom's dad really didn't like that. Um, you know, because they've been through real, you know, because I think when I was younger, I thought it was cool, like military stuff, you know, shooting people. We, you know, when you actually think about it, like, is that really what you want to be doing is, you know, killing people? That those, those people don't even want to be there in the first place. I'm not saying there's not ever a case for war, um, but a lot of those wars are sort of, you know, 
funded by uh, ulterior motives and you know i think the individuals soldiers get put in these uh positions where they sort of led to believe they need to fight for this cause and very patriotic but in many cases if they really thought about it would they want to be there fighting yeah um, well no, there's there's definitely that um kind of double-edged sword with a lot of the people who had on the show where they, i mean obviously they're aware of some of the ulterior motives of some of these conflicts but then what kind of makes them justify is when they go to some of these places and they see there are still horrible things happening sure. and they lose friends and that at least gives them that intrinsic purpose of being there now but yeah yeah totally i mean i've also you know because i train the military a lot and i've had you know friends come back and you know been, they've been manning a security checkpoint and some old men's you know come up to them with a um a trash bin you know garbage bin and uh opened it up and there's like a couple of his dead grandchildren in there you know and so you know the people are always scarred by that and the ptsd and i think that they should be offering you know, much better counseling for those troops that come out uh, when they return from war. Because there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, I can't imagine that situation. No, no, I mean, we, we do touch on that a lot with this project because obviously military first responders, you know, the ER, um, yeah, there's many, many areas where, you know, people do not only see horrible things, but then the environment that they're in. We talked before we started recording, like sleep deprivation and, you know, the, the work weeks just compound that. And yeah, we do, there's no question we have a, not even in our community, but just generally, we seem to have a mental health crisis going on at the moment. Yeah, totally. All right. So then you come into the world. So um, firstly, what was your family dynamic like? So what did your dad do and your mom? And then how many siblings did you have? Uh, so my dad um, did a lot of, uh, he actually did truck sales um, or lorry sales. Lorry, say in England. Say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so he did a lot of that, but like as as time moved on, he moved into self storage. So that's what he's still doing now. Uh, my brother is uh, from my mum's first marriage, so he's my only sibling, uh, Richard, and he was into fitness and, and bodybuilding, and he was a personal trainer for quite a while, uh, and now works with my dad. Um, you know, and that's it. It was uh, an upbringing in uh, a town called Melton Mowbray, which is known as the rural capital of food in england and um yeah that's that was about it brilliant and what got you into martial arts so my, my family got me into it originally my dad put me into karate kijinkai karate when i was eight years old and to be honest i didn't really like it at that time i was sort of being pushed into doing it um and did it for a couple of years on and off and then sort of took a break uh, but started getting into the you know the martial arts films, especially Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, you know that type of thing, and that's when I sort of really get, started getting into it. And then so when I was fifteen, I started studying Taekwondo, and but also started really looking into no, actually probably fourteen, maybe fourteen around there. Um, and then when I was fifteen, sorry, later on, uh, like maybe close to sixteen, I um, got into a I got attacked on the street, basically got beaten up, started realizing that all of those choreographed karate routines really weren't that effective, um, perhaps counterproductive actually, and started really digging into different martial arts and trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong, what could I have done better, um, and studying different styles. You know, basically what Bruce Lee was doing is the search for truth in combat. And so that's what I started doing. Bruce Lee would say, Research your own experience, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. So I sort of took that approach and started realizing that Bruce Lee wasn't just a martial arts movie star, that he'd already really thought about 
um, you know, what really works and start looking at the immutable principles of combat, so the risk to reward ratio, um, economy of motion, things like that, and start applying that, th- looking through that lens at various martial arts and trying to put that together, not just eclectically here and there, but synergistically trying to weave those martial arts together. Yeah. Now, he, I was talking to Clint Emerson, the Navy SEAL, the other day, mm-hmm. and he was a big Bruce Lee fan at the same time. Um, and it was amazing looking back now, because I, I was the same. Like, I... I did karate, then I did taekwondo, actually won some national championships, and then went to a boxing gym, got my ass kicked, went to a kickboxing gym, got my ass kicked, you know, more recently jiu-jitsu got my ass kicked, and you know, so you realize like on this journey that, okay, there's there's elements of this that are good, and taekwondo ended up being great as I was a stuntman for a while, it looks awesome on film, you know, spinning kicks, jumping kicks, but... um, but yeah, that, that constant humbling. But you look back now where we've got, you know, MMA and we've got CrossFit. Yeah. The Tao Jeet Kune Do, that's pretty much what he was thinking about right. in the 60s and 70s. It's no, amazing. totally. It was ahead of his time, uh, for sure. And the same sort of thing happened to me. You know, I was doing well in Taekwondo. I was winning most of the tournaments that I was in. Probably, you know, first or second place in all the tournaments I did. And then, yeah, and when I was 16, I went to train with a guy called Jeff Thompson in Coventry. Um, was he the bouncer? Yeah, he yeah, was a bouncer on a bunch Jeff of books. And, uh, yeah, like, oh, what's called, the problem? And yeah, smack him in the, the face. Create <laughs> the fence, yeah. Ask a question, engage the brain. Yep. Knock him out. Three second fight there basically was one of his books. Yes. I think. Um, so I went and trained there and that was a huge wake up call for me. Like you said, going to a boxing gym, you know, <laughs> you realize things don't work. Because, um, you know, I wanted to find the best. So, you know, in England at the time, he was sort of, again, ahead of his time, combining lots of different martial arts. And I remember going in my taekwondo gi. <clears throat> I think it was, was I 16 or 17. I had a red belt in taekwondo at the time. Was that TAGB? Uh, it was ITF. ITF, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the same one I did. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then I went WTF after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, so basically I um, went to Jeff Thompson's place and it was like this scenario set up where you basically had to act as the bouncer. So you stand up and face the wall, right? With your eyes closed, covering your ears. And then there's like about 25 guys maybe all sort of discuss what they, their plan is they're going to do. And then you basically engage with the, <laughs> there's 25 people all walking around. You pretend you're a club or something, right? Yeah. And so people, some people are just milling around. Everyone's got boxing gloves on or some sort of uh, hybrid glove where you could punch in and grapple. First red flag. <laughs> yeah, 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 everyone's going, hey, what's going on here? So anyway, I'm wearing my taekwondo gi, but of course those those lads were just training in like shorts and t-shirts and like, yeah, they didn't care. And, um, you know, someone starts asking me a question, I start engaging, you know, got a lot of adrenaline and they'd use, you know, like they'd be swearing at you and start shouting you, shoving you. And you say, you're just training that I hadn't really experienced before. And then I remember someone asking a question and then someone else, you know, smacking me from the side uh, in the jaw, knocked me down to the ground. And then there was like, basically they picked three, three guys that were just going to jump on me and start attacking me. I remember within like five or 10 seconds, my Taekwondo gi, you know, cause they were thin compared to like jujitsu gis. They were, it was ripped off and uh, just hadn't experienced anything like that, you know? And then another part of session that day, I remember grabbing someone's throat you know i grabbed his trachea when we were starting to grapple on the ground i had very little grappling experience and i remember him grabbing my nuts and just like yanking them and so i went to down to to defend that and then he locked his fingers and i remember like being able to join his fingers around the back of my trachea and i that's when i tapped out um and that was just a whole different world and a a really big wake up because i'd read a lot of the books and it was theoretical and i was like okay 
um, I need to start doing some of this stuff. But when you actually get in there and do it, it's a, it's a huge wake up. Yeah. Yeah, I just had a, an experience recently. I did Sheepdog Response, Tim Kennedy's yeah. class. Um, great. I mean, I love the fact that they're going around to law enforcement specifically. I mean, yep. it's great for civilians too, but, you know, our men and women in blue need options. Absolutely, you know? yeah. But, um, God, rolling with some of those guys, I actually roll with Tim and, and some of the other cadre. Yeah. You know, and you're doing your jujitsu stuff, and I'm a striker as well, so at least I have an understanding of, oh, I could actually pop you here. But yeah, Tim's sticking his fingers in your eyes, smothering you, covering your mouth and nose. And you're like, God, yep. you, know, you just forget. If you stay in one art, especially if you start entering like a sport realm of that art. Yep. Um, yeah, you can get such a false sense of security. And, and you know, if, you, if you're not in that crucible like you were put in, um, yeah, you, you realize that you're not as prepared as you thought you were. Yeah, no, totally. I think and even just regular people, they go on a mat just on jujitsu and they don't realize like how, uh, you know, really sort of, puts people's egos in check but then when you start combining all these different arts it yeah becomes exponential so um yeah that's how sort of started my journey to even dig into it more and really search for the truth in combat right so then where did that take you what was your what let me rephrase it what was your career aspirations when you were high school level and then where did you end up going i want to do something in uh leisure and sort of fitness and that type of stuff um and i applied for um sort of a, a leisure degree or something fitness type degree in uh, Bournemouth University and you know my grades weren't that great and uh, at A levels they're called in England as you know and so I ended up like shifting onto another course that was basically called land-based enterprise it was a bachelor of science degree and it looked at um, land use actually um from a uh, sort of soil perspective and gradient perspective and it basically looked at the diversification of land use from the primary sectors like agriculture and mining because the agriculture was becoming more efficient um we were getting more imports you know mining was decreasing and, and it basically looked at the diversification of that land use into tertiary sectors like leisure and tourism and but it was a science degree because it looked at like what is this land usable for and what can we do with it and what are the demographics nearby um to be honest, it wasn't something I was that, <laughs> that interested in. Just sort of, you know, I'd already sort of planned on going to Bournemouth. My girlfriend was going at the time, you know, and so I just ended up doing that. But what ended up happening was I just spent a lot more time studying martial arts in university than I did for my degree. So you I still, both. <laughs> yeah, I still, um, I still graduated with a Bachelor of uh, Science degree with honors, but, you know, probably barely just because I really didn't spend much time um, doing that. In fact, um, I never read one of the uh, the entire books. You know, I'd always read like the introduction, the first paragraph of each chapter and the conclusion, you know, of any of the books I was studying and managed to sort of get by doing that. <clears throat> but I was studying so much martial arts. I was doing, um, at the time, there was Wing Chun there. Uh, there was boxing from, uh, there was actually an older guy that had been in the Olympics, you know, years oh, really? back. Yeah, but it was pretty old school. But he'd bring some new boxers in, so I was doing some boxing. <laughs> Uh, kickboxing. I was doing Japanese jiu-jitsu, which had a lot of the same throws as judo, but it was sort of a little bit more self-defense orientated. Although, to be honest, I wish I'd done uh, more judo. Um, but yeah, so I just studied, you know, a number of martial arts while in college, just um, as much as I could, basically. Yeah, that's, that's funny because I did sports science in University of North <laughs> London and oh, I fought okay, yeah. for the, the college as uh, WTF. And then there was a boxing gym. So I did that. I actually did hockey first. Hmm. But I got so pissed off with the the kind of 
oh, you know, you, you missed that shot, so you've got to drink the whole top shelf of the, <laughs> you know, at the pub yeah. or wear a dress. I'm like, or I could just not play with you anymore and go do something that right, doesn't productive involve, and yeah, doesn't public involve. humiliation and intoxication. Right. Yeah, I, also, I almost um, played, I've been playing rugby for 10 years in school. And so I also really enjoyed rugby, but it sort of came to this point where, you know, there's always an opportunity cost with your time, right? And so it was sort of a choice at that point between should I keep playing a lot of rugby and like minimize my martial arts training, but I just really enjoyed the combat sort of sports, but also the, the self-defense aspect. Um, and so really focused on martial arts. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought this before. I know our generation as Brits, we wrestling wasn't really that big. And obviously, you know, the, the MMA world, mm-hmm. when you come to the American and Russian fighters, you know, that wrestling is their thing. Yeah. Did you find that at least the rugby training, that impact, that, you know, the yeah. tackled side that helped you with the, the wrestling portion of it? Yeah, I think that's a huge help. I mean, just taking the knocks, right, and just getting sort of toughening you up a little bit and tackling people, I definitely think that helped a lot. Uh, funnily enough, another sport um, that I used to play was, um, and I've got back into it more recently, actually, was table tennis, which seems totally on the other side, yeah, right? it seems like it. <laughs> um, but that was also really good for uh, reaction speed, hand-eye coordination. Um, I also used to play the drums in a band. I think that was good for coordination. So I think all these things, you know, some these different uh, modalities of sports give you different um, insights and, and you benefit in certain ways. Um, and then in college, so I did all these sports and then sort of towards the last year or so, um, I learned about this guy called Phil Norman, who was actually originally on that, um, he won that, uh, what was the show called? Gladiators? Yes. Or whatever. So yeah. he won that, won that show. But he was also... Um, you know, a student in Jeet Kune Do, he used to come out every year and train with Dan and Santo, who was Bruce Lee's training partner. And then he also trained with a guy called Eric Paulson, who went on to become my coach in the States uh, in combat submission wrestling, who's also uh, a Jeet Kune Do instructor. And so I started training with those guys. And that's sort of how I started getting into the um, learning about, you know, I obviously I knew about Jeet Kune Do from Bruce Lee, his um, system, but that's when I started learning about the, the various instructors that we're currently teaching today. Uh, which sort of led me out to, um, you know, training out here. Right. Yeah. Because um, I know when I was looking at, because Dan was more the Filipino martial arts, wasn't he? Yeah. And then Paulson was more of a, a grappler. Yeah. Primarily. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I went there. There was a is it Bob Breen? Yeah. In, in London. In I never. Bob. Yeah. I never went, but I remember you know his academy was the closest one. I kept meaning to go, and I, I never did because I had all the other stuff going. Yeah. On. So Phil Norman was friends with Bob, and um, so we used to go up there as a group, you know, and train. Right. Brilliant. So then take us through to moving to America. So, yeah, so it was uh, 2000 and, you know, I just thought, well, I'll take these six months off. And I originally thought, okay, I'm going to train at the Dan Santo Academy, right? So, you know, Dan was Bruce Lee's main training partner and not just partner, but he would teach him stuff and, and Bruce would obviously teach him, you know, a lot of techniques and, and training methods as well, but they would train together. And so, you know, there's this big split in the Jeet Kune Do community. I don't know if you're <clears throat> aware of it, but there's like, there's basically the Jeet Kune Do concepts and then there's what they call original Jeet Kune Do. So there's sort of these arguments of like, which is the authentic Jeet Kune Do. And then within the original Jeet Kune Do, there is sort of subsections. So there's like the era that he was in Los Angeles or the era that he was in uh, San Francisco. Oh, and so okay. they actually teach different curriculums so based on what he was teaching Bruce's at the life. time. Yeah. Because right. people who trained in San Francisco, that's really mostly what they did. So they teach what he, they learned from him in San Francisco. But of course, Jeet Kune Do wasn't really about that. It was about adapting over time and it was more about the concepts. And so the con, I sort of fall, 
I, I definitely think there's some great instructors and, and, and great training in the original Jeet Kune Do, and it's interesting to learn and so forth. But I fell more on the sort of concepts side, um, which is what I think Bruce would have carried on to do, um, is continued evolving. Like if he was alive today, would he be doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and, and other things incorporating that? Absolutely. He was already getting into grappling, as you'll see in his book. He was training with Jean LaBelle. Um, and so I fell more on the concept side, basically. And I, so I originally was coming out to train with Dan Asanto for six months. Who I've been trying to get on the show. I went did a seminar with him recently, but I'm working on it. Oh yeah, he's amazing. It, yeah. I mean, I would love to sit down. Even just talking about the Philippines, he's so passionate. Yeah, yeah. and he's so, he's so historic. Like if you go, it's like a history lecture when you learn the techniques. You know, he talks about, you know, with boxing, for example, uh, the the position that we have now, sort of the head chin down and sort of forward, the hands up, elbows in how that came about. And it's actually when the Americans went to the Philippines and the Philippines, of course, would, would also fight with knives. And so they'd have a reverse grip. And because if you, yeah, you didn't want to fight with your palms up because they do the reverse grip and the knives could cut your own wrists. And then also if your head's already far back, you know, the old school wrestling style. And originally one hand was out and one hand was on the hip. Uh, the, the rear hand so if your right leg's back your right hand was on your right hip and then it went to the american boxing um went to both hands sort of forward with the head back with the palms facing up you know you've seen that old school boxing but when the americans went over to the philippines that so the philippines if you had your head back already when a knife swung at you you really couldn't go further back so they would sort of very guarded right with their arms up high uh with the knives and they could slash out and if someone uh, slashed at you you could evade it because your head was forward to start with so the Americans went and just boxed the Filipinos and uh, the Filipinos beat all the Americans. And that's when the, the, the style of fighting to what we see today in boxing actually began um, in, in the States. Um, anyway, so every time he teaches you a technique, he goes to this 10-minute lecture about the history of this technique. And it's just fascinating. Um, and so and Dan Santo is amazing. It, probably the most, if not one of the most overall knowledgeable martial artists in the world um but you know as i was talking to them you know paul was saying well you know in the 70s and 80s when we trained at the innocento academy um it was the floors were painted red because there was always blood on the floor so they didn't want all these blood stains they just painted the floor red and because it was like a hardcore gym but of course when you run a martial arts gym you sort of have to start commercializing and then you're in la and you start getting business people and you know celebrities and they can't get hit like they don't want to get hit in the face that hard people think they want to and then they get punched in the face and they quit so i think that sort of hardcore mentality from the 80s when vunak was really training there a lot uh, in the early 90s that sort of shifted and so you know paul said well, why don't you come and be my apprentice so paul vunak would train to teach us these two days what he called iptp intensive personal training programs people fly in you train five hours a day you know two and a half hours before lunch you have lunch with paul two and a half hours afterwards and then you do that for two days and you and you, you know you can come out as often as you want and, and train with paul and so it'd be like one to one to i don't know four people that we'd have in these you know intensive training sessions and so paul said why don't you do that so i thought well that sounds pretty good you know and paul's sort of known as the like the black sheep of the jeet kune do concepts family because he would get into fights you know he used to go out and train the navy seals in virginia and they would go out to the biker bars and like literally go and test the techniques that oh, they've really? been doing in the day yeah he got arrested a, a bunch of times would get put you know pulled out for national security reasons to go but you know 
they'd be like he'd be getting sentenced and they'd come in and the seals would like stop him from being sentenced yeah (laughs) because they needed him there right so um yeah so some people sort of frowned upon him but but paul was really into like what is going to really work in combat and he sort of took the floodlight of information from down in the santo and turned it into a laser beam basically for fighting and focused on that stuff um but basically so i I decide okay i'm going to go and train with uh, paul vunak for six months and it was amazing because it was like in the morning we'd maybe do some jujitsu for 45 minutes just him and i and then we'd train people for five hours which i was learning a ton all the time and then in the evening we might do a bit of stick training just him and i you know, it was just uh, incredible. <clears throat> and originally the plan was for six months and that dragged on and I was sort of his main apprentice, his sort of protege for a long time. And uh, so anyway, um, I would also still go up weekly uh, to the Innocento Academy at that time and, and train there. So I sort of got the best of, of both worlds. Uh, and it just sort of grew from there, you know, originally six months and then you know, it was my visa, it was a six month visa at the time. And I just sort of went back for a couple of weeks, came back for six months, back for a couple of weeks. <laughs> And it just sort of grew from then. I started training people, you know, out of uh, someone's garage at the time. And uh, it just sort of grew from there. All right. So then what did the next few years look like after that? Uh, just continued training, really. I started uh, training a lot with Eric Paulson, you know, in the combat submission wrestling, who I'd already trained with in England. Um, but started training out there. I started training with a guy called Chris Brennan, who was a really good jujitsu black belt. Um, who was fighting in pride at the time, things like that. And it was my whole focus was on just martial arts, really. And uh, I was teaching. I started training um, various government agencies. So I got, you know, started training the Marines down at Camp Pendleton, uh, the U.S. Marshals, arrest response team, which is basically the SWAT team, um, DEA. And then, uh, of course, in, in 2001, after 9-11, I started also training the uh, U.S. Air Marshals, Federal Air Marshals. Um, so I was just totally engrossed in, in that. And... You know, it was really about like self-defense and street tactics and military tactics was has, has always been my main focus. But there was sort of this, you know, this sort of urge to test myself. And you can't do that morally on the street with the techniques I was teaching. So the closest thing, although it's not real, I mean, it, it, <clears throat> sorry, it's real. It's not like WWE or whatever it's called. It's got boundaries. It's boundaries, yeah. yeah. And so, it's, it, so I don't want people to think that the UFC and MMA is not real because it is. But there's a lot of restrictions. And so, but it's the, it's the closest thing that you can test yourself in. And so I just, um, you know, occasionally like once or twice a year, uh, you know, maybe I take a year off or whatever. I would just have some professional fights. Uh, not because I was trying to become a professional fighter, but I just wanted to test my skills against someone that was really trying to take me out, you know. So um, that's what I did for, for, for a number of years. Yeah. So I know you ended up representing Britain in the UFC show. What was the actual house experience like? Being aware that, you know, reality, the word reality and reality TV is, is a loose term. You know, did, I mean, I'm, I, as a, put it this way, as a, as a viewer, I could see that you take a house of fighters, you remove televisions, but you put in alcohol. Seems like totally. shaking the snow globe a little bit. So what was your experience from the inside? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just mentioned how I got, you know, onto that show and why I decided to do it. So it was 2008. And I was turning 30 years old. And I was living with a couple of roommates, um, Tom and Mark, and, and they were training in martial arts as well. And, you know, we were watching one of the ultimate fighters. And I said, I could beat all of those guys. And they said, yeah, well, then go on then. If you, if you think you can do it, show us. And 
I just thought, well, I don't want to look back and say, yeah, I did a lot of martial arts. You know, I, I was good at martial arts. I could have been in the UFC if I wanted to be, because like anyone can say that, mm-hmm. right? I so I just wanted, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, maybe people could, maybe they couldn't, but like, I didn't want to look back and say, I could have done this, right? Or I should have done this, or I would have done this. So that's when I decided to start, um, you know, taking the fighting seriously in 2008 and see, see how far I could get. So I had a couple of fights. I won the... Uh, welterweight world championship for gladiator challenge which was like a sort of tier b or c sort of mma show fought in the king of the cage um and and then basically uh you know i've been training with joe stevenson who'd won another um version of the ultimate fighter and uh the ultimate fighter people had called out to him and said have you got anyone you recommend and he said yeah this this guy james wilkes so i actually skipped the first trials i didn't need to go to them went to the second trials um, and then pretty quickly they, you know, I was selected to fight. And of course I've been living here, but obviously I'm British and, and, you know, from the UK. So they said, okay, well, you've got to fly back and in, in, th- uh, in three days, you've got to fight, um, to get on the British team. So I had to fly back. I was jet lagged fought on the, uh, fought one of the UK guys and, uh, a bit won the fight in 30 seconds with a heel hook. Cause of course at the time the, the grappling in, in America was quite a bit better than, it was in the, in the UK. In fact, when I first came out here, um, there was only one black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the whole of the United Kingdom. Really? Whereabouts yeah. is that? Um, I think he was based in London. Uh, he was Roger Gracie's dad, and his name was Mauricio Moto Gomez. And I remember grappling against Roger Gracie um, when I, he was like 16, maybe, in a blue belt, and I think I was a white belt. Really? Back then, yeah. Um, tapped me out, you know, a couple of times, obviously. Welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but anyway, so I, um, yeah, so I tried out for Ultimate Fighter and, um, the house was, uh, as an interesting experience. It is reality. I mean, there's no, they don't tell you to do anything, you know, but they do give you alcohol. And, you know, when you edit a reality show, you can ask people certain questions to get them to say certain things. And, you know, you edit it, right? So you've got 100% of your footage and maybe you show 5% of it. Um, and they can misrepresent what you're saying. So, for example, they asked you, what is the worst song you've got on your iPod or whatever it was at the time? And I said, nah, I don't know. Or the, the, fun that, the song that most people would make fun of or something like that. And I still, I still like it, but it was like Brian Adams, everything I do. That's a classic, though. Yeah, but it's good. It's good, <laughs> it's right? A good but, song. but still, it's like, it, like which which is the worst song or the song that people make fun of? Yeah. So then, on television, they said, "Here are the favorite songs of the people in the Ultimate Fighter," and then they put you know cut to me saying Brian Adams, everything I do. So they can tweak stuff, but you know, you know, basically it was real. Um, they can just you know edit it in a certain way, um, and then the, the worst part was as it got towards you know um the end because as people were lost and out of the competition early on in the ultimate fighters they would leave the house but not anymore right and when i was on not anymore so basically you've got people that are now not training as hard no they've got nothing to win they're sort of sitting around maybe in case someone gets injured and you know step up but basically they've got no incentive to train properly to get up early to so they're drinking like crazy partying in the house and like the night of the finale, people were up to like 3 a.m. the night before, screaming, throwing each other in the pool, getting in some fights, throwing flour on people's faces, like just like goofing around, you know, and you're trying to, as a serious like professional, you're trying to sleep and get ready for the fight the next day. So that definitely wasn't easy 
and you know not being away from um who's now my wife and uh from all your friends no television no phone no newspapers no magazines no internet nothing uh it's, it's an interesting experience yeah yeah and like i said just from a, a viewer's perspective you know that that's if, if you were gonna move the chess pieces around to maximize the possibility of drama then i think they they had that down with the removal of any healthy stimuli yeah. and then the introduction of alcohol because i mean we all know there's very few people that drink they're like oh i think i'm gonna write some poetry today you know yeah <laughs> we normally get a bit rowdy so totally and, and talking about healthy stimuli so i actually created <clears throat> a uh, i created a chess board out of a piece of cardboard box they wouldn't let you buy any pack of cards nothing so i created a chess board out of a cardboard box that the food came in and what else did we do? Oh, we did bottle caps. So I, you know, black marker pen to create the squares. And um, we used different bottle caps and, you know, different things to make the chess pieces. And then, in fact, actually, I ended up getting that signed by everyone on the British team, the UK team, Dana White, Lorenzo Fatida, you know, all those guys. So I've still got that at home. Um, that provided some mental stimulation. But yeah. Brilliant. I remember um, one of the seasons, his name was Jonathan. Was it wasn't Davies, I don't think. But he was the kind of white white guy, had the dreadlocks. But when all the tomfoolery was going on, he was always out in the garden meditating, doing yoga or something. And I was amazed mm. at the discipline that he had to separate himself, even though, I mean, I don't know what they had, 12 in the house or something, mm -hmm. to be the only person out there. And I think he ended up winning as well. But I don't know what happened to him. Though. He, was a, he was a hell of a jiu-jitsu guy, I know that. But um, So then you won the Ultimate Fighter. So then what was that? after i mean what was yeah your journey it was, it was like? an interesting experience really because i'd sort of really set my mind on winning the ultimate fighter but i hadn't really thought about what if the I consequences <laughs> of that yeah you know i thought i felt pretty confident that i could win um but i only had this sort of one goal and you know to be honest like i enjoyed fighting after that uh and, and certainly training for it and there's elements that i you know i was really sort of Early on, I was very nervous going, you know, walking in front of 20,000 people to fight <clears throat> um, to start with. But I feel like you've always got to put yourself in those situations where you're uncomfortable. It makes you grow as a person. But uh, to be honest, I just didn't have the drive to fight in the sport. Because first of all, it wasn't my main sort of area of expertise or desire or interest. Because my interest was always sort of street self-defense, which would include like multiple attackers, um, you know, verbalization, posturing um fight evasion mental awareness um knife defense using a knife using improvised weapons gun defense you know all, all sorts of different elements basically so it wasn't my main interest and i just didn't really have the passion for it as i did you know going towards the ultimate fighter i really set a goal and after that i didn't really have a goal that was driving to me and i felt now i felt like i was just fighting for a, a paycheck you know, it just wasn't as interesting to me. And I thought, like, felt like I had to fight now because I signed a contract and now it's, you know, I'm making $50,000 a fight or whatever with the sponsorship and then with the pay from the UFC. And just felt like I was fighting because I had to, you know. It wasn't as interesting um, for me as it was, like, leading up to the Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that burning desire, that internal why is so important. You see that even with people that have done very well, like um, Georges Saint-Pierre. Like you could see again as a as a fan watching that there was a certain point where you're like, why 
why would you want to keep fighting? Right. You know what I mean? You kind of peaked. You've out wrestled wrestlers. You've out boxed box. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's such an incredible athlete. At a certain point, I know the same with the fire and police. At a certain point, we're like, where's that balance between loving this job, but then this job starting to be detrimental <laughs> to your family, your health? You know, and if I think the smart ones know when to also right. say enough is enough. And it could be, you know, what you did, just, just winning the ultimate fighter and then going, all right, I'm good. Yeah. But there's other ones that, you know, keep fighting and fighting and fighting and that might be great for them but you also see the detriments of that you know the the fighters that are in their 40s you know 50s even the you know are getting parkinson's and all these things too so. sure yeah and i think i know you know guys that are still fighting in the ufc and some of them are definitely doing it because they're super passionate about it but i think quite a few of them are doing it because they, they, i mean it's, it's hard to turn down that paycheck and and for a lot of them you know what else would they do that was paying that kind of money so I think that's um, sort of sad, though, when, it's, when you're doing it just for the money. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there are so many other ways. But I think a lot of these fighters, when you when you hear the backstories, and a lot of them have come from pretty rough upbringings, which I think right. is, is definitely a, a good ingredient for a fighter. But, you know, are they also being shown that there are other ways? Right. Just because you're a great fighter doesn't mean that you couldn't be the next can write the next amazing book or be a great teacher for kids you know whatever it is right so then i know i know you hurt your knee and that'll be a great segue into you know the movie and everything but up to that point as an athlete who you know did did very well what was your nutrition like at that point so i was mainly eating um what people would sort of consider as a healthy sort of athletic diet so i was doing extra lean turkey um chicken breast brown rice broccoli a lot of a lot of brown rice and broccoli with the chicken oatmeal you know which is what i still eat today um so and i'd have you know i'd have uh, steak occasionally uh not all that often sometimes i got it in and out so i would definitely eat some sort of some process you know sometimes some crisps or chips whatever you want to call them um depending on which country you're in but i i was mainly eating pretty healthy um, what people consider pretty healthy. Towards the end, before I switched uh, to going plant-based, the uh, I would eat. Uh, I started looking at sort of more of a paleo-type diet. So I was eating grass-fed uh, beef and like air-chilled chicken, um, for, uh, and that, those sorts of foods. But for most of it, it was you know as I discussed, like extra lean stuff. I thought that like you know chicken and turkey was the way to go with you know with plant foods and other veg, you know some other vegetables, but it was pretty boring, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's it. Is again, I, one of the things of the podcast is is trying to um, reverse engineer some of the bullshit that we've been taught, and we kind of are from the same generation. Like, if you want to want to work out and you go work your way through the YMCA bodybuilding machines, you know, and you want to eat well, just have a giant bowl of pasta, you know. And now we're realizing, well, you know, yeah, if you want to be a bodybuilder, absolutely, <coughs> those are great machines for bodybuilding. But if you want to be a tactical athlete you may find some incredibly weak links in that chain if you're only using machines, for example. Yeah, well, I think like one of the biggest things, the difference between, say, bodybuilding or what most people do at the gym and then sort of technical athlete training is that we work a lot of linear stuff, right, as like as, as at the gym. So you're pushing and pulling on that plane. It's just like straight. But if you look at all sports and like most tactical stuff, like realistic, functional things that you're going to be doing out in the field, there's a lot of rotational stuff, and I think that's lacking in, in most people's training, right? Uh, it's that rotation with the core 
and, and the stability and uh, that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And what I found, because I, I teach at a, a gym um, and it's predominantly a CrossFit gym. Mm-hmm. And I think that modality is great. I think our coaching staff, we've got a very young um, coach who does the programming excellent now you know floor work and accessory work and all that stuff built into the warm-ups and really really good but i noticed for a tactical athlete point of view that kind of like you're saying our feet don't move very much right we're standing in the place whereas most tactical athletes are moving some sort of weight over distance a fire hose a ladder you know chasing a perp whatever it is and that was the element that was missing. So the class that I teach is a lot of sandbag sleds, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, I love that you know, stuff. Unilateral carries. Yeah. Um, brilliant. So then talk me through the injury and then the epiphany that you had after that. Yeah, and so and, and also there's stuff that's not covered in the documentary that um, of why I actually retired so that we can go into that stuff Yeah, let's as well. do that. Yeah, because I mean, um, the goal is to bring some unique things to the uh, conversation. Yeah, um, so it's tricky because you make a documentary, but you you can't cover cover every aspect and go into every detail. I mean, like, even when we interviewed a lot of people for the documentary, which we'll talk about in a minute, some of the interviews were two, two hours long, four hours long, and these experts, and it's tough to like get it down into ninety minutes. Uh, but anyway, um, so no, so so what happened was um, I was sparring with Fabrizio Verdum, who later became on the the heavyweight champion at one point of the UFC. He had like I don't know seventy eighty. 90 pounds maybe on me because <laughs> I've bought it 170 and I was two weeks out from a fight um, that I'd been given on short notice and uh, basically sparring and I was tagging him and he was getting pretty angry with me and he, he was sort of trying to hit me and of course I've got a lot less power than he does but um, because I'm lighter I was a bit faster than he was and um, he was getting annoyed and then we were supposed to just be kickboxing but he's basically stormed at me sort of blasting me in the face and he did a flying knee took me off the ground uh, hit me in the sternum, took me off the ground. And when I landed, there was sweat on the floor and my feet slipped out from under me, um, you know, sideways. And then uh, the sweat stopped. And then even though it was supposed to be kickboxing, he sort of sprawled on top of me. So I had his weight on top of me, like maybe 260 or whatever he is. And then my weight, I was like probably 185 leading up to the fight and basically stopped. And then all of his weight and my weight went through my knees and I tore <clears throat> my MCL on one leg and the uh, LCL on the other leg, about 50% on one and like 30% on the other. It was extremely painful and at the time, uh, but then the next day I realized uh, I got to pull out this fight, unfortunately. And so I started really just thinking, what can I do that's productive with my time? And so I, I knew I'd have like six months where I really couldn't train. And so I thought, well, I'll just start spending my time digging into the peer-reviewed research on nutrition for optimal recovery and then athletic performance. And that's when I came across a study about the Roman gladiators. So they unearthed 68 gladiator skeletons, 5,000 bones in Ephesus, Turkey, which at the time was the only known for sure burial site of gladiators in the world. And scientists analyzed the bones and they can tell there's a strontium calcium analysis. There's a radioisotope analysis. Again, we didn't cover everything in the film because you can't. But they basically indicated that they were eating uh, the vast majority of the calories from plants. And that's when I thought, well, that can't be true because you've got to eat animal protein, especially meat, to be strong and healthy, especially as an athlete and even more so as a man. And so uh, that's when I just started really digging in more and more to the research and then realized that we've really been fooled by the meat industry into believing that we need those foods to be strong and healthy. Uh, and sort of that led into, you know, the Game Changers uh, documentary, which I made, 
because um, the documentary doesn't touch on everything. So basically, I um, I continued uh, after I'd healed up, and it actually took a little bit over a year until I was really training properly again. Because uh, they, they let the um, I had some things like I had uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma therapy in the knees, which again now there's been studies showing that it's questionable on of its efficacy and it may be placebo. It might be because you're told to rest for a month, you know, after the injection. But whatever, I, I didn't end up needing surgery on my knees. Um, so they, they healed. Um, still get like, if it's cold outside, still get a little bit of pain in there, but, but generally they've healed, healed really well. But I, so I did end up actually training um, for a fight uh, I remember shooting a double leg on someone um, and they moved out the way and I, I hit my head on the wall. There was a padded wall <clears throat> and it sent pains down my um, spine. And I'd actually um, fractured, broken my neck, um, you know, when I was younger. And I was really worried. I thought I've broken my neck. Um, so I went and got an MRI and they said, yeah, you've got you know, severe stenosis. Stenosis is the narrowing of a canal. So basically around uh, on the inside of my vertebra where your spinal cord goes, the bones have grown in from the front and the back. Usually you've got space. So when you get hit in the head, you know, your, your head moves and your spinal cord's got some room inside of the vertebra. But um, the bones are grown from the front and the back and they're actually touching my spinal cord. So basically I went to four different, got four opinions from experts and they said, yeah, you've got, all of them said significantly higher risk of paralysis. And so I trained for a fight and I was feeling really good after I'd started switching my diet um, because of the research I came across. Um, but again, in a documentary, you don't have time to explain all of the, you know, every single detail. Yeah. Um, you know, like I say, I got injured after, you know, while I was in the UFC, but I didn't explain like a couple of fights in between after I won the UF Ultimate Fighter. You just, you just can't. You, making a documentary is really tricky trying to figure out what you can fit in. You feel like before you make it, you know, there's like 50 people that we filmed that never made it into the documentary. Uh you just feel like you can fit loads in but in reality you've got 90 minutes to not only put the science in there but tell some interesting stories and go into detail about stuff so um yeah that, that didn't make it into the documentary about why i uh, medically retired from ufc but um so i basically just you know woke up at two in the morning after i was starting to read all this research and thought i've got to tell everybody about this because i hate being lied to and i felt like we've been lied to here you know, let's make a documentary. And so started off with a used camera off of Craigslist, um, called the uh, Everett Motta, who was the director of photography from The Ultimate Fighter and said, hey, what, what camera do I buy? You know, uh, and then I went on YouTube, learned to do the three-point lighting for interview setup, bought a little wireless mic. <clears throat> Knowing that that footage might not get used in a proper documentary, I'd either edit it myself and put it online on YouTube or something, or I'd use that footage to get other people interested and sort of grow from there, which is what happened. Yeah, that's a brilliant way of doing it. So many people, I think, try and overplan whatever it is they're thinking about. And it's the same with this. Yeah. I remember listening to Tim Ferriss and one of his advices to, you know, starting a podcast he was talking about in that episode was just do it. Yeah, just do Pull it. Pull the trigger, you know. Too many people wait so long to, to get things perfect. Uh, and that hinders a lot of people and it just never ends up getting done. Yeah. And like, how many people do you think have said they're going to write a book one day? Well, this guy, I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way, and I hit a wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you but just got to do it. I you just got to do it. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you just got to do it, and and not worry. I think they say like perfection is the enemy of good. You know, and so we've always aimed with the film to make things like an eight out of ten, because if you know people say, oh, try and try and always give it your best, and like, yeah, give it your best, but like if you expect a ten out of ten for everything, you're going to hinder yourself and. Although the, the documentary took years to make and it was ridiculous and um, 
you know, it took a long time to raise money and a long time to shoot things and a long time to learn about making a documentary as you're making a documentary. And, and right now we could do it for half the money with half the amount of time probably now that I know more. Yeah, but at the time, like first time filmmaker, you know, uh, but you just got to get on and do it, I think, and, and sort of go from there. And, that, and that's what happened. Um, so 2013, so, uh, so in 2012, I connected with Joseph Pace, who became the other producer and uh, one of the two writers. And he was instrumental in, in getting this done. He, uh, he'd been plant-based for 25 years. He'd got some s- script writing experience. He'd also done a lot of um, research in university into you know, the health aspects of a plant-based diet, the environmental aspects. He'd helped coordinate a 60,000-word report on um, health, um, impacts on rural communities, the environment, animal welfare. So he just, you know, he really knew a lot about the space and, and about script writing. And so we teamed up. 2013, we raised some money. We did some sort of preliminary filming. Realized that it wasn't the quality that we needed. And there were some really interesting stories. And we needed like a master storyteller. So we put it all on hold, um, almost the whole of 2014, basically. We put together a little sizzle reel, and that's when we met Louis Sahoyos, who became the director. So Louis has the most award-winning documentary of all time, the which, first film he made. Which is what? It's called The Cove. Oh, it's I've about, heard of that. Yeah, it's really good. It's about the uh, dolphins. Um, well, it's about m- many things, but it also looks at the, uh, the dolphins in Taiji, Japan, where they sort of trap them all and then slaughter them for dolphin meat and they save a couple of the best ones to sell to the sea world. Um, it's, it's about more than that, but there's the trainer of Flipper in there, you know, from the film who sort of ends up going the other way and starts rescuing, um, dolphins instead of sort of entrapping them. Um, so we, we teamed up with him and then also in 2014, we were fortunate enough to have a meeting with, uh, James Cameron. And he got behind the project and it just sort of snowballed from there. So 2015, I think it was April, we started reshooting again with this new crew, with a bigger budget, um, with, uh, yeah, just some really amazing people. Mark Monroe, who's a top documentary writer, Dan Sweetlick, who's a two-time Eddie winner. That's the best award you can get for editors. So just this amazing team shooting in 4K, better equipment. So it took a long time, you know, you shoot for a couple of years and then they say for editing, you need to allow for every 10 minutes in a film, you allow one month of editing. Uh, so a 90 minute film, that's nine months, right? And then you've got to produce the score, which is the, the music track, which a lot of stuff was composed, you know, for the film. Then we came out, uh, we, we sort of spent six months actually editing act one and there's like three acts in a film, you know, typically this is how you sort of format. And we, uh, we got offered to go to Sundance film festival but we only had two weeks to get it submitted um and we hadn't really done act three so we'd worked on act two for a few months and then so we rushed in act three got it out and it was really well received at sundance but um we weren't really happy with it i feel like it was like a seven out of ten or something and um the ending was kind of flat because we'd rushed it the pacing was a little bit slow you know that we could have improved the score quite a bit so in 2018 we went back into filming we filmed the story of the tennessee titans you know the the uh football players and um the chef that uh, charity morgan is amazing chef that was cooking for them and we filmed a bit with lewis hamilton but we just improved the pacing and the music and the timing and the ending and so we weren't really done with it until you know later on in 2018 and then of course you go into distribution and those negotiations take uh take quite a while 
Uh, and we could have got it out sooner, but these distributors, they wanted more control. They didn't want us to put out resources afterwards. And so we ended up self-distributing and it didn't come out until, um, what was it, September of uh, this year, 2019. Right. Now, is that self-distribution why you see some films doing that one night showing and then going to the online platform? Yeah. So we did a, a one night, I think it was like, it was over 1,200 or maybe 1,500 theaters. I can't remember what it was around the world on one night. So we partnered with a company called Fathom Events and they specialize in this sort of one night event theater where it wasn't just the film. It was also, there was, we did 22 minutes of bonus content that went afterwards, like an after show. Um, and so, yeah, we partnered up with them to specialize in that because if you go with a traditional, we wanted to get it out to the world as soon as possible. And if you go with the traditional theater route with a traditional, um, theatrical distributor, you have to wait 90 days until you can put it onto a, a transactional platform, at least, you know, for streaming. And we didn't want those restrictions. We had a lot of offers from Netflix for it to be a Netflix original, but again, it would have only been on there. And there was restrictions around screenings and things like that. And so we um, we really wanted as many people as possible just to be able to have access to the film. That was one of our main goals. And so we basically negotiated with different distributors, um, but we organized all the marketing and um, distribution. So it's on Netflix, for example, and people say, oh, it's a Netflix documentary. It's not a Netflix documentary. It just happens to be on Netflix as a, as a license deal, you know. And But it's also on um, Google Play, iTunes, Vimeo, Fandango Now. Uh, this Just this in this next week, we're coming out with DVD and Blu-ray, which surprisingly a lot of people are asking for, especially doctors who are asking for like 500 or 1,000 to hand out to their patients. Oh, really? Yeah. Excellent. And um, so, yeah, we just want it as wide as possible. It's going to be in China soon on a platform that's got 800 million viewers, twice the size of uh, Netflix has worldwide. So that, that's all we were doing is just trying to get it out and, uh, you know, so people could watch it. Brilliant. Well, I want to just just go back for a second. So your own personal um, experience with switching to plant-based, what what did you, you know, James Wilkes find in your own Yeah, body? so after I'd seen a, a, a bunch of the evidence and met some of the athletes, I thought I'm going to give this a try. I wasn't committing to do it forever, which I don't think people should. I, mean, I think they should just you know try it and see how they feel. Um, so I... I switched and I cut out uh, red meat first and then chicken and then dairy and then, um, you know, fish and eggs were the last to go. And uh started feeling better, honestly. Like my recovery was one of the things that just seemed faster. And because my knees were injured at the time, um, as you've seen in the documentary, I, I was doing this ropes. So the challenge is a 50-foot, two-inch uh, shipping rope. So it's looped around, so it's 25-foot, you know, in each end. And uh, you're doing the battling ropes. And uh, the most I'd ever got was uh, eight minutes. And it was a gym of like, uh, and you had to do it at like a certain pace and you had to keep the waves going. And it was the same st- you know, style of ropes. It wasn't mixing them all up. Right. Yeah, they're just the up and down one the whole like straight. And, um, you know, not sprint. You know, if you do sprint that, it's tough to do it for like three minutes, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like, a, it was more like a jog basically than a sprint, right? And, uh, but at that pace, I'd only got eight minutes before. And there was a bunch of, uh, collegiate or professional athletes at the UFC fighters at this gym we were training at. And, um, the most I'd ever got was eight minutes. If you got 10 minutes, you got your name on the wall. And there was some people that got 20 minutes. And, um, so six weeks after I was like a hundred percent plant-based, um, I got an hour straight and my hands were bleeding actually a little bit from the blisters that I opened up and, uh, still felt like I could have kept going, honestly. 
Um, yeah, and so again, that's just anecdotal. It doesn't prove anything, um, but it's interesting. And then another thing I didn't get to mention in the film is um, so my bench press, uh, dumbbell bench press, right, in each hand. Um, I had been stuck at 105 for five, about five reps for uh, over two years. And so for some people, they say, oh, you know, some people laugh and go, that's nothing. Like, that's pretty weak. I've got a pretty small chest. 105 dumbbells? Yeah, some people laugh and say that's nothing. And then some people say, oh, that's a fair bit of weight. So it depends who you are. Yeah, to me, that's a fair bit of weight. But if you're a powerlifter or something, Mm -hmm. you know, then you're like, I've literally had people call me out when I've given a speech before and they're like laughing. You know, so whatever. Like I fought at 170. It was 105. I think it's decent. Like you can see my back is much bigger than my chest. I've never had a big chest. Yeah, well, most strikers don't. Right. Combat sports. Yeah, and I remember when I started lifting, even when I was out here in the States, I think like I was struggling with 85s, you know, I was younger, like in my 20s. So anyway, I built up to 105s. And uh, again, within weeks of switching, I went up to 115s for six reps. Again, totally anecdotal. Doesn't prove anything. Uh, It's interesting. And I think it's reflective of the, the science that we know about nutrition. Now, what um, about your digestive system? Because that's that's something that I know I didn't really discuss in the film so much, and you know, even in um, Joe and Chris's discussion, anecdotally for me, that was one of the biggest thing I noticed. So I, I'm not plant based at the moment, but just like you said, I did it for a while, did a you know, hard reset kind of thing. Yeah. But I was amazed removing dairy got rid of a lifelong stomach issue. I was in hospital yeah. with you know abdominal pains and constipation and all these awful things. Mm. I won't go into too much detail, but it, yeah. it sucks to be relieved of constipation. Yeah. <laughs> that way. Um, but, you know, and then my dad is a vet. So the entire veterinary, wor- veterinary world, um, you know, the, the fecal matter is one of the diagnostic tools. And I realized that switching to plant-based, everything was working better. And, you know, without being too graphic, the, the toilet paper usage went down a lot, if you know what I'm saying. So what about you for that side? Well, I mean, first of all, I'd mention as well that some people actually have, you know, let's say they don't have a problem with dairy or they weren't doing dairy to start with. And they, if people like get inspired, they suddenly jump into 100% plant-based from what they're eating, that can actually cause some uh, distress and upset as well. So let's, I don't want to like sugarcoat things and say, you just switch and it's all great. And like, it's easy. Like, like it's completely easy. Don't worry about it. Because some people will experience gastrointestinal distress in early stages if they jump in 100% because you've suddenly gone from not having enough fiber to like plenty of fiber. And if your gut's not used to it uh, and there's certain bacteria in your gut, in the microbiome that's used to, you know, breaking down certain foods in an early stage. Now, I'm not trying to discourage people from jumping in overnight, but most people sort of generally do better sort of working in gradually. So I would just point out that some people, I didn't really experience that myself, probably because I, sort of, it was only over this period of like six weeks or two months or something that I sort of transferred over to 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't, I don't remember really experiencing that. Um, but I would point out that people beware if, if they do switch overnight, that they might have some, you know, issues in the first few weeks or whatever. Um, but personally, I don't know. I think like, yeah, it's probably better, easier going to the, to the bathroom than it was before. You know, doesn't take like as long as it did before. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't feel like I got huge distress from drinking dairy, which I'd occasionally drink. I wasn't a huge milk drinker. Um, so, and again, I don't want to oversell it. It's not like it was a cure-all for me. And I just, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have gut issues really before that I can really recall. Um, but certainly, yeah, in terms of um, you going to the bathroom, I mean, things are just feel just regular and, Efficient. and better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> 
Yeah. What about um, pain inflammation? Did you see any relief on that side? Yeah, I, f- I feel like, you know, recovery from workouts felt better. And then people say, oh, well, you know, did your knees heal better because of the diet? I don't, I don't know. Because we didn't have like a controlled experiment. You know, both knees weren't... Like if you could injure one knee exactly in the same way and test it and then exactly another way and control for all variables... I don't know, they healed well, but it did, did take a long time. Like after about five or six months, I tried going back and training jujitsu, tweaked my knee again, someone pulled it, you know, another couple of months in, tweaked it again. I'd probably tried to go back in too early. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I feel like I recover better than I did before. And I feel like my endurance has improved. And I feel like my strength went up. Uh, but again, I can't prove that that's causal based on the diet, um, or even though I think that it's, backed by what I know about inflammation, because that's really the key thing, right? Is that animal foods tend to be inflammatory, uh, plant foods tend to be anti-inflammatory, and so inflammation is geared around blood flow. So we know that inflammation in the arteries slows down your blood, which means you've got less oxygen, less nutrients to the muscles. Um, so you don't want to you don't want to have that inflammation. Now, to, to just to explain though, because people sort of say, oh, inflammation bad, no inflammation good. That's not quite true. So you actually need acute short-term inflammation. That's part of the recovery process. If you didn't have inflammation, your, your muscles wouldn't uh, grow. And so you do need some of that short-term inflammation, but you want to get through it quickly um, so that you can train again more efficiently. Um, so I, and then in terms of injuries, yeah, you want to get through that quicker because your injury will heal quicker. And so I think the my anecdotal experience is backed up also by by the science. Yeah. Now, because my whole perspective, and I know as we're recording this now, Game Changers came out. Um, Joe Rogan, Chris Cressa did a kind of uh, critique. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Joe. You know, I think he's, he's got a great show. He's definitely someone who inspired me. Um, in their discussion, I know you're about to go and talk to those guys yourself personally, but um, the one area they didn't discuss and the one area that resonated with me the most, and I had Rip Esselstyn on the show before, was it was specifically firefighters which is awesome it was actually in the friends of firefighters building and i've had um the uh the head of that on the show as well um but is taking the average person so we're sitting here now i'm a you know pseudo athlete weekend warwick an athlete you're an elite athlete so our well, experiences, I, don't, I, don't about, I don't know about anymore <laughs> well you know regardless you you yeah. are you're teaching yeah. um you know so and that's what the discussion was with them as well you're like you know these these elite athletes that you have on the show yeah <clears throat> to me the real for for this platform that i have the real impact is how can we affect the majority of the population many of whom when we look out the window you know are obese have high blood pressure cholesterol diabetic um and that was a very pertinent thing that you know rip was showing in the film and it's also something that i've seen over and over again the game changers has had you know people in my circle switch to that and they've had effects so whether it's like you said whether it's for a couple of months or your lifetime there is no question that switching to that diet where there's an emphasis on plants now putting in nutrients that probably weren't there when you're having your all brown and yellow plate of you know mac and cheese and you know chicken fried steak whatever it was um is a huge benefit you know and the details obviously can be argued in the minutiae but um, so tell me about that portion, the FDNY firemen and, and, you know, some of the, the blood work changes that they saw. Yeah. So I think, I can't remember how many fighters, like 40 or so firefighters. And, and so basically, you know, Rip Esselstyn, who's a former firefighter and, uh, former professional triathlete, 
um, very good swimmer. In fact, he's one of the executive producers on the film. He actually is the one that introduced us to James Cameron. And I don't know if you know, but he just broke the world record um, in backstroke for his age group, the 200 meter backstroke. Really? Just a few weeks ago, and then like a couple of weeks later, uh, he beat it. He's beat his own record again by a second. So he's still like a phenomenal swimmer and in great shape. Uh, and has been plant based for I don't know twenty something years or whatever. His dad's uh... Doctor Coldwell Esselstyn. Yes, right. Who did the research at the uh, the Cleveland Clinic and was able to reverse heart disease, um, you know, evidence through under angiogram, seeing reversal of plaque buildup and the arteries opening back up yeah, using a plant based diet. Um, so where were we talking about the, I'm sorry, uh, the so the, dairy. the firefighters, oh, yeah, the, the, the firefighters. yeah, so, so basically, uh, Rip put them on a sort of whole foods plant-based diet for, uh, for one week and I can't remember the exact number, but there was a drop in total cholesterol of like two, uh, 23 or 26 points. Of course, that's not the only factor, but again, for a documentary, if you go into like HDL, LDL ratios, and things like that and explaining like there's not just LDL there's VLDL and there's the fluffiness of the particles and like that sort of people are going to glaze over and not a lot of people aren't going to pick that up not because they're not smart enough but like for a documentary you can't go into all of that so we actually did test more than was shown in the documentary and there was you know improved blood markers across the board um you know people lost body fat and weight during that week um and just better blood pressure and um lower LDLs uh, better LDL HDL ratio, and and Rip's done this over and over again. You know, so like not just on that do- in the documentary. You know, Whole Foods, for example, the company, these companies that self-insure, there's a vested interest in getting their com- their um, their employees uh, healthier, right? So because they self-insure, instead of just like paying for heart surgery and paying for a bunch of diabetes medicine, they take their sickest employees and they put them on a, a one week plant-based uh, retreat with people like uh, Rip Esselstyn and they get healthier and they get off their diabetes medication often and they lose body fat and some, if that prevents them from having heart surgery I mean you're saving like 150 grand right there right so uh, it's pretty interesting to see these large corporations like Starbucks for example spends more on healthcare of its employees than it spends on uh, coffee beans right so it's like it's a, it's a, it's a large expense for a, a big company like that um, so they're sort of starting to recognize that plant-based eating is the way to go to to really help offset that. Um, but anyway, so it's been repeated again and again. You know, the cholesterol drop is somewhere in the mid-20s every single time on average for every group that he's done. Uh, LDL comes down and just improved blood markers. Now, of course, you could say, well, the whole plant food, sure, they did better on that because they now weren't eating processed plant foods. You could say that the benefit was from that. You could say it's from incorporating more plants it could be nothing to do with like cutting down the meat, right? But so you can't, that experiment, it's not even a real, you know, it's not an experiment per se. Um, It's sort of one of three sort of uh, tests or experiments that are done in the film. Um, And and we're not claiming that those three things alone are evidence that the plant-based diet is superior. They're just sort of illustrations of what we know from the science to be true. and there is certainly a double benefit, right? Like there's always an opportunity cost of everything that you put in your mouth. So if you put in a whole plant food, you're then not putting in a processed, um, you know, that's offsetting the, uh, you know, white sugar and flour that you could be eating or the bacon that you could be eating or whatever. And it seems clear from the evidence that the benefit is twofold. It's both from incorporating that plant, whole plant food into your 
diet and it's from excluding uh, the animal foods and the uh, the processed plant foods as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and that's what I see. You know, is rather than focusing on you know the the absolute proof of like which categorically is the reason for this, it's like taking a step back from from a layman like I am and saying, but it's working. Whatever you know, it doesn't need to be explained. We're, we're taking out processed food. We're putting in good. They've got this rainbow of colors on their plate now. They're getting way more nutrients than they ever did before. Right. And then what I found on my personal journey was when I started factoring meat back in, mm-hmm. it had totally recalibrated my view of meat. Right. So now the quantity changed. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to have three meals a day of meat. Right. And if I do eat meat, it's going to be a clean, you know, grass Better quality, yeah. yeah. Ideally, even, you know, some sort of ethical raising to it as well. Like really right. delving in yeah, and yeah. taking that money that you had you were spending on those three meals and saying all right this is maybe a little bit more about where i shop now it really isn't even that much more um and then voting with your dollar because right. if we keep buying the processed food we keep telling those companies this is the demand keep right. sending us the shit instead of saying well here's the money let's start in areas that you can let's promote local farmers to start growing local produce it doesn't have to be trucked two and a half thousand miles across the country and let's encourage you know if you do do the you know the meat side well, let's encourage the you know the um, polyface farms of the world you know let's get the joel salatins to holistically raise the meat if you're going to do it that way you know so to me if if we spend time arguing about which is right which is wrong we're missing the middle ground where we've got a very sick nation overall and through just what you said, introducing a lot more plant-based, whether it's 100%, whether it's for a certain amount, sure. whether it's you know a tiny bit of meat, fish, eggs, whatever, it's no, it's a win-win. You right. cannot totally. fail. I mean, that's what we're you know we're trying to get across is like we're not saying go vegan or go vegetarian, but we do think that. I mean, I personally think that there's strong enough evidence to go 100% plant-based, right? But what we're really saying to people is you should be really getting, if you want to be as healthy as possible and perform as well as possible, try and get the vast majority of your calories from whole plant foods. And then what those remaining things are, like it's harder to prove the 95 to 100% plants than it is to prove the 95% plants to the 50% plants, right? And so, and the thing about plant-based diets, you know, people think that the paleo diet is the opposite of the whole foods vegan diet. It's not. In fact, the longest study where they had a two-year follow-up on the paleo diet, so they were to- the, the people in the trial were told to give up dairy, right? They were told to eliminate or complete, you know, reduce as much as possible processed foods, white sugar, flour, white bread, you know, this type of stuff. They were told to increase their meat consumption and they were told to increase their fruits and vegetables and, and, and uh, you, know, berry, you know, berries and all this type of stuff, right? So what actually happened on the two-year follow-up is that they followed all of the recommendations except for they did not increase their meat intake. So to me, you just cut out dairy and animal food. You just cut out uh, processed foods, which most people can agree are bad. And then you increased your plant consumption of fruits and vegetables, but you didn't increase your, your meat consumption. To me, that is moving from like a standard Western diet to a more plant-based diet. You're including more, more plant-based foods in there. So I think that's one of the important things. So if you want to include, you know, a bit of meat or a bit of fish or a bit of eggs in your diet, um, that's one thing. Again, you know, I, I think the science is, is strong enough to say that there's that opportunity cost where you could have had more plant foods. Uh, and again, some people will get inspired to go vegan and they'll take the meat off their plate. And then maybe they're not replacing it with, they just take the meat off and they just eat what's left. Maybe they throw in more vegetables. While you could be calorically deficient because vegetables are very low calorically 
in, in caloric density. And so perhaps you weren't replacing with the best things. There's certainly certain nutrients in, in animal foods that you can get easily. So you could argue, well, I could just, if I just eat a bit of meat, then I can get it easier here. But with a bit of forethought and planning, um, you can really make it quite simple to get all of the nutrients you need on a plant-based diet. And of course, there are things like you know B12 that people should be supplementing. Um, but again, it's not about what I think in my interpretation of um, the evidence, thinking that it's best to get 100% of your calories from plants, but uh, certainly getting the vast majority um, of your calories from whole plant foods is basically scientific consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what what I've you know observed as well, I think for me, like if I know someone who's really struggling physically, I think a plant base is a great baseline for for many reasons. Firstly, you know, like they were they were discussing the vegan um, honeymoon. I think that's what a lot of people find. So initially, you're going to feel great regardless whether you introduce meat or you don't. Um, you're going to learn how to cook. Huge thing in this country at the moment. You're going to understand what other fruits and vegetables actually look like, how to prepare them. You know, so again, if you start pulling things back in, it's less likely to be from a process thing, you know, but I I just, again, I don't see any, any negative side, but you get these people from inflamed and chronically sick. Mm -hmm. You get their blood sugar back where it needs to be. You get their, their blood, you know, markers back. You get the inflammatory markers down through doing this which again like you said removing all the nasty stuff that they're eating then whatever that morphs into if meat comes back in you know whatever it ends you've you've set this baseline now of a good nutritious plate of food and understanding of preparation and hopefully understanding of the source because one of the things especially being a fireman we we have hazmat teams on our department watching a person in a hazmat suit spraying our food with chemicals and that being okay is fucking insanity to me you know oh you just soak it for an hour and then it'll be fine no it's in every cell of that right. you know yeah people so, think that the uh the pesticides and stuff are just sort of from contact they don't realize that most of the pesticides actually are systemic so they go into the soil and they're taken up by the roots and they're inside so people think oh well a banana must be safe because it's got this thick skin they don't realize that like, it's gone up through the root system into the the food itself. Yeah, and what was interesting, I know with um with Joe and Chris when we were discussing it, and they're talking about the number of uh, creatures that were killed growing. But he did reference the pesticides and everything, and I, I agree one hundred percent. Like I don't think that you know mono farming is healthy at all, sure. and it shouldn't be organophosphates and all these pesticides and sure. things. But if we go back to a um, holistic organic, you know, um, model again. Yeah then I think I'll be interested to see the study of now the impact, you know, even ethically, you know, and I'm not someone that's going to say, you know, I'm, I'm never going to kill an animal because I, I see that other side of it, but you could definitely reduce it, you know, and then even with the meat consumption, you know, and I know that a lot of the hunting community, they, they kill one deer and it lasts some months and months and months, right. you know, whereas most consumers, three meals a day of a plate full of meat, if you just took, two of those meals out environmentally you'd have an impact if you then demanded holistic raised meat environmentally you'd have an impact if you demanded organic food and you know fruit and vegetables and beans and you know, legumes organic i mean excuse me environmentally you'd have an impact so we can again vote with our dollar to force this nightmare that our food has become this industrialization to go back to local farms and if you're in bigger cities then of course you can't grow it in the middle of new york city but New York State has so much, you know, arable land further out in New Jersey. 
then we just help the LAs and the, you know, the large cities of the world by one or two states over. But we found ourselves in this bizarre, like, um, you know, Terminator 2 style environment, but with our food. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, like you say, it's not, it's not black and white where if you eat all plants, there's no animal deaths. And if you eat, you know, just, I think what you have to compare though is, is, uh, apples for apples. So what sort of Joe will typically do is he'll take the best possible scenario of, um, hunting deer, wild deer, which is not sustainable for the whole population. And in, in a way, it's a little bit elitist, right? Because Joe can afford to fly to Montana or wherever he does, take a week off and go hunting. Uh, and there's certainly people that live in rural communities that can do that. But for people that live in LA, it's just not like a realistic scenario. And also this sort of argument that, um, there's more, you know, uh, deaths of animals, uh, when you, when there's wheat. I mean, where are the majority of wheat and soy and everything? Where is that in, in a realistic system? Where is that being fed to? 95% of the soy crops that are grown in the Amazon are fed to livestock. So those fires that are being illegally created now, those are being laid down for like both to grow crops for those animals and to let them pasture. And also the, the, there's been a lot of twisting of the facts. So that, that main uh, animal study came from a single acre in a 2003 study, um, which said that there was 33 deaths uh, of mice in, in a single crop area. 32 of those were actually found to be killed by predators, only one by the combine harvester. And the fault with that study is that they there was an assumption when they said that vegans kill more animals than, say, grass-fed beef. There was an assumption that vegans and omnivores use the same amount of land uh, as each other to grow the total amount of food. And that's erroneous. So when that study, there, there have been uh, uh, environmental scientists that have now reviewed that study and said, wait a minute. And if you take the data from that study and um, take into account the amount of land that's used by a vegan versus an omnivore, there are still far less deaths created by uh, the vegans. So there's a little bit of twisting, right? Because people like to pick their things based on their bias. And so, yeah, I mean, I think if you go and... And we know about wild meat, until, not just in terms of the environment and animal deaths. We know that wild-caught meat is healthier. It's, uh, it's, so the best... Um, there's not really studies that I know of that have been done on elk. But if you take in Australia, um, their sort of equivalent would be wild-caught kangaroo meat. So they are, that has actually been tested for the inflammatory markers. So they used both CRP, which is C-reactive protein, something called IL-6 and something called TNF-alpha. And these are markers in the blood which are representative of inflammation. So they tested sort of traditionally grown meat, uh, factory farm type stuff with um, the inflammation of, um, of these kangaroo meat that was wild caught. And certainly it showed there was about half the inflammation from these markers across each marker as there was from the meat. So it was still inflammatory, but it wasn't as inflammatory. Uh, and again, potentially better for the environment. Uh, certainly, I think there's an argument for that wild caught. I think it's questionable when we talk about grass-fed beef um, and grass-finished beef, because like a lot of cows are, are grass-fed anyway. They're finished on, on grain. Um, but uh, certainly, I think there's, if you're going to choose some meat, I think, you know, going out and hunting some elk, so long as you're not shooting it with lead bullets, by the way, because there's been implications of the lead uh, in the meat and that's sort of spreading throughout the meat. Um, so you're probably better shooting it without lead bullets. Um, it's probably going to be better than, you know, to have small amounts of that than, uh, than having factory farmed or even grass fed beef. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that whole discussion to me, it kind of reminds me of the, 
the global warming discussion. Mm-hmm. Like you got everyone who's for it, you know, <laughs> not not for global warming, you know, yeah. arguing that yeah. it's a thing. Um, and then the the anti community. Yeah. And I just remember standing in LA going, why are you two groups of ding-dongs are ready to kill each other over this? I can't even see that mountain that's 50 feet away because of the right. smog. Right. So why don't we just focus on that instead? The byproduct is probably going to be if global warming is a thing, we're going to improve it anyway. But start with the things that you can see. And the same thing with, you know, with, with what we're talking about. While we're arguing about, you know, is veganism versus carnivorism, you know, the middle ground is can we please stop spraying our crops with pesticides? Can we stop keeping our animals in these, these horrific factories and feeding them antibiotics because they're basically about to die and these chickens, the breasts are so big, they're breaking their legs. And like, can we start there? And then, <laughs> then we can work out, you know? And that's the thing. It, to me, it's almost a distraction. I think these middle, you know, corporations are loving the fact that there's this back and forth because the middle ground is, you know, um, is where most people are going to connect with, right or wrong on the outside, carnivore. That's where most people are going to connect with. And right now we have a very unhealthy society, an absolute dependency on these chronic disease meds. And as a paramedic, you know, firefighter paramedic, the number of people that I've, you know, lost in a cardiac arrest, I had a sack full of these the meds. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars in this bag that were told this will fix this, this will fix that. When the reality is exactly what you, you know, where you and Joe and Chris agree which is however it's done, changing what goes in these people's mouths as, as a, you know, the majority of it is, is the, the key, you know, and that's what really frustrates me is both sides are right. You know, both sides are thriving. Both sides are saying, look at me, this is working for me. But, you know, instead of the information being immersive where, you know, they're listening to you, they're listening to them, it's turned into this, you know, freaking Trump versus Clinton battleground and in the meantime everyone's so distracted that they're still eating the shit and you know like game changers for example oh i just heard that was bullshit i'm going to go back to mcdonald's and get my burgers again instead of it was an interesting view you know person x whether i agree with it or disagree it's definitely inspired me to to look at my plate and go okay there's there's definitely some shit on here that i need to remove right yeah totally and the good thing is that's the thing about a documentary don't just buy into whatever a documentary says like look into it yourself a little bit research your own experience absorb what is useful reject what is useless add what is specifically your own as bruce lee would say and that for me was like you know i was originally on this search for truth in combat and then i felt like i went for this search for truth in nutrition and i feel like i'm like a fairly smart guy that's like trying to be objective of course there's always like some biases and perhaps you you know believe in certain narratives or whatever but <clears throat> people should sort of it's, it's tricky with nutrition right because people don't have the uh, time uh, and they don't have the necessary experience or the wherewithal and know how to read these scientific studies and there's so many and there's so much conflicting data that i do think it is tricky to to know what to eat but i think yeah i think the issue with you know the factory farming and, and all this sort of stuff which i think most people would agree is not the right way to go but is that people like want the most amount of food and the tastiest food for the cheapest you know amount? So I think like it's going to be hard to get away from that model because people just don't want to spend the extra money to to pay for you know higher quality food. See, but it's interesting because you guys are in LA, so you don't have that arable fa- land around you. But where I am in in Florida, for example, I mean, you know, most of America is pretty rich farmland if you yeah. look at it. Um, I can go to my farmer's market and buy fruit and vegetables cheaper than 
the non-organic stuff mm-hmm. in in the grocery store. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are there are um, cattle farms around us. There's a place called Earth Fair that has a great meat section if you're a meat eater. But it is yeah. it's you know grass fed, grass finished, um, and it's really not that much different. So I think there's also a fallacy of it being more expensive. If you're in Newport Beach at Whole Foods, I'm sure it's going to cost a lot more, you know, but. You know, if it's supply and demand, if if everyone ends up demanding to have that kind of food, that's going to bring the price down. Yeah, totally. In fact, um, I heard, I can't remember what the guy's name was, but he was like the main purchaser for food for all of Walmart. And he was saying it was like around 15%, 10 or 15%, when 10 or 15% of people were buying a certain, like if they 10 or 15% bought organic fruits and vegetables all the time, it would basically bring the cost down nearly to the same uh, as conventional. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I heard. So it'd be interesting to see, and hopefully it does shift in in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get some closing questions because I know uh, I'm going to let you go. Um, so before we talk about where everyone get the film, um, actually, let's, let's go to one more thing because this is another area I want to discuss. I know they talked about it on um, on their analysis, but the uh, erections mm-hmm. okay so in the movie you know they, they do that experiment they do the, the meat versus plant base <laughs> yeah. they find that there's uh you know longer and stronger erections mm-hmm. for these men that they use yeah. um what is the long term because i'll interject with kind of my my understanding of some stuff in a moment but that was a one day kind of observation a two-day observation um talking to dr spitz what's his kind of data on longer term like overall sexual health with people that have moved to the plant base yeah i mean so the, the penis is considered by urologists to be the barometer for men's health like if you get erectile dysfunction it's considered the canary in the coal mine so arterial disease anywhere is arterial disease everywhere they just manifest and you just call them different diseases but the arteries that go to the penis are some of the smollest in the body and that's why we asked dr spitz if he thought there'd be an impact so the work on animal ba- heavy animal-based meals and arterial function has been done for over 20 years. Right? That's, that's pretty well known in the scientific literature. And so we thought it'd be interesting to ask him. And just taking a step back, people say, oh, well, you showed um, you know, cloudy blood. That's hypertriglyceridemia, um, I think it's called. I can't remember. the uh, Basically having lots of fat in the blood, you know, animal fat, saturated fat especially. And... Um, so it's called postprandial lipemia, which means fat in the blood, and there's lactescence, which means the milkiness of the blood. And of course, we only showed that, and Dr. Robert Vogel, who's the co-chair of the Cardiovascular Committee for the NFL, basically said something about this impairs your blood flow, but we didn't go much further. If you actually look at the experiments that have been done in the past, in alignment with the milkiness of the blood, is actually of up to 50% reduced endothelial function. You can actually, like, under ultrasound, you can look at the size of the arteries and opening up. So the endothelium is the lining of the arteries, which produces nitric oxide and also something called prostaglandin, which are vasodilators. They allow the arteries to open up and more oxygen, more nutrients to go to the muscles and other organs. So it's not just that the fat looks cloud, uh, the, the blood looks cloudy in the serum. It's that there's actually a knock-on effect for that, and it lasts six to eight hours. So anyway, we wanted to see if this would have an impact in, in erectile function. And Dr. Spitz says, well, it's never been done, but there is a device, you know, called the Ridge Scan, um, that you can, uh, it's a penile plasmograph. The Ridge Scan is the, the brand name. And you can test, uh, circumference and rigidity and duration of erection. So, okay, let's try it. So again, as Dr. Spitz points out in the film, 
This is not a scientifically validated experiment. Now, as filmmakers, we could have cut him out, cut that bit out. But we wanted to be honest and open, which is what we tried to do throughout the whole film. We always made, made sure that the science was, anything that we referenced was re- reflective as the preponderance of evidence, right? Because you could always check some, you know, pick some study saying anything, but we wanted to make sure that it was reflective of the preponderance of evidence. So we know that a heavy animal-based meal will impair arterial function for up to six to eight hours. We know that the arteries are some of the smallest in the body going to the penis. So it's likely that it would show up there more than it would show up elsewhere. Studies have been done on um, fiber intake, which is a surrogate marker for plants, right? Because fiber comes from plants and erectile dysfunction. People with less fiber have more. So basically people eating less plants have more erectile dysfunction. And people eating more plants have more erectile dysfunction. Um, and I think, you know, my understanding is that Dr. Spitz recommends that his patients eat about a 95% plant-based diet uh, unless they have prostate cancer, in which he recommends they have a 100% plant-based diet just to be safe, like the precautionary principle. Um, and so it's not just about erectile dysfunction. It's also about prostate cancer and just men's health in general. Um but yeah, there needs to be. Then there actually are some studies underway to see if the uh, the thing that we did in the film like plays out with the larger subsets and under you know tighter controls uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, on the Joe Rogan podcast, I haven't watched all of it yet, by the way. But he was saying, you know, maybe they smoke, maybe they don't smoke. Maybe um, it was the first night effect. Maybe they had an orgasm one night and didn't. They were asked not to uh, masturbate or have sex. Um, None of them smoked. They were fit subjects. Dr. Spitz thought that that might be more uh, indicative of like, it might show up more. They might be more sensitive to the impact, right? Being like high above athletes, probably got good arterial function at that age, regardless of the, of the diet. Um, they're probably eating what most people consider fairly healthy. All of them were eating meat, obviously. Um, and so it wasn't, it's not a study that you can rest on. It was one night of one meal, one night of the other. By the way, we did do some pilot trials before that where we reversed the order and did meat on one night, meat the other, and we had similar results. Right. You know, we don't put that in the film. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so, um, yeah, was it well controlled enough? Like, no, I don't, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a hundred people and like crossover and then a random crossover again and like double blind. And no, I mean, there's, but we said that in the film, we let it play in there. It's all the, like that one and the one with the, uh, the test tubes and then the firefighter, those were like narrative illustrations of a reflection of the science. If we just put a bunch of text up the whole time and talking heads, people wouldn't watch it and find the film interesting. So when you're making a documentary, you've got to find a balance between like putting enough science in, um, putting enough interesting stories in, having an interesting narrative. Like it's a tricky thing to make a film. Less than 1%, by far less than 1% of the science that we uncovered during the making of the film went into the film. Uh, so it's tricky. So like anything you do, you can p- pick apart. You know, if someone can make a paleo documentary, a carnivore diet, it'd be quite easy to try and take down and pick apart the film. Um, but there have been, you know, there are some longer term studies on fiber intake. And, you know, I, I think there should be more studies, you know, randomized controlled trials on specifically a completely whole foods plant-based diet versus perhaps a sort of Nutrivore diet or whatever um, Chris Cresser would call it, you know, a paleo diet or a carnivore diet. It'd be great to see those things. But right now we have to look at the totality of the evidence and, you know, all of the world's leading health authorities are suggesting that we predominantly eat plants. 
Um, and so we have to kind of go with that. And, and there's certain mechanisms. We know that there's more oxidation and more inflammation from the animal foods. We know that there's anti-inflammatory and antioxidant capabilities of the plant foods, which all suggest um, that we should be eating either the vast majority of our from plants or exclusively plants for not just um, erectile dysfunction, but also prostate cancer and heart disease and cancer and diabetes. Yeah. Yeah, you see, and that what what um, yeah the film didn't expand on what the discussion with Joe and Chris didn't expand on as well was, regardless of that specific dramatization, one of the most least known facts of male health is that your erection is indicative of your Absolutely. overall cardiovascular system. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah. And so, if you are taking a blue pill because you can't get a boner anymore understand that's the absolute worst thing you could do yeah and that again masking yeah you're masking the the underlying cause right yeah and so if again you go full plant-based if you replace processed food with with plants and have your you know you you don't give up your meat whatever understanding that this is in your control and you can reverse your cardiovascular health and you can get your erections and then you obviously that's gonna there's no question there's a link with your libido as well which may have a knock-on effect to you know the health of your marriage but that's what I find, you know, crushing is in our in our um, profession, the sleep deprivation, again, contributes to hormonal destruction and their testosterone is in the toilet. Yeah. So you add that to then some cardiovascular ill health. You know, I'm 45. You know, you shouldn't be inactive. But that's like in our kind of age group. It's like, well, yeah. I am 40. You know, that's why it's <laughs> not like, no, it's yeah. bullshit. But right. it might be normal. It doesn't mean it's optimal or, no. or, or it should be happening. It's normal for society. It doesn't right. mean it's normal for humans. Right. My, my grandmother's 102. So I mean, I'm not oh, even wow. middle age yet in her lifeline. And I'm Inter- going to give up sex for half my lifetime. Hell yeah, no. it's interesting. My, my grandmother lived to 102. Oh, and, really? Uh, in fact, she was actually alive in three centuries, which must be pretty rare. Yes. So she was born in 1899 and died in 2001. Wow. So I bet there's very few people that have, uh, can claim, you know, there's some people, there's obviously a small amount of people that live to 100, um, but must be a much smaller number that have actually lived in three centuries. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and she ate meat and ate sugar. And, yeah. <laughs> you know? And you always get, you know, on top of that, yeah. you get those. And I think, again, that generation, you know, I grew up on a farm in England, so we had a vegetable garden. Right. And I don't remember using many chemicals and you know i think most things just grew you know and if they had worms eating them they had worms eating them you know it doesn't have to look like a symmetrical piece of art if you're going to eat it but i think that generation was set up for success because they did cook they the local butcher even if they were eating meat you know i know for me you know meat was kind of a luxury so you weren't quantity wise right you weren't having as much no not even in the junk food as much yeah yeah and then and then you know this whole argument about you know is is the the clean meat cars, you know, carcinogenic. Again, let's focus on the process, you know, the, where we know absolutely if you put nitrites and all these horrible things in this meat that's, you know, sickly in the factory farms, we know hands down, drop the mic that that's absolutely carcinogenic. So again, stop focusing on, oh, is this one, you know, yeah, we, I mean, we need people, to agree if with people that. Were to, like, let's say you spent the same amount of money or, you know, a bit less money and you basically, got meat that was higher quality, right? You cut out, you spend that money that you were spending on factory farmed crap meat and you basically had half as much and it was better quality, then you're already making a step in in the right direction. Again, I do think that there's arguments to cut it out. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I think they're fairly strong, uh, both for the opportunity cost of not getting in more plants, but also because I do think there's um, things even inherent to meat without the antibiotics and without the hormones. 
And I think there's environmental arguments. I mean, people are talking about, you know, carbon sequestration of, um, you know, eating grass-fed cows, but people forget that, like, if you go grass-fed to finish a cow on, on grass, it takes up to three years versus the six months on grain-fed. So the amount of uh, methane that they're putting out is actually uh, six times greater. Now, does the uh, carbon, carbon sequestration of, of um, you know, them being uh, grass-fed offset that? Um, I, I mean, my understanding is that it doesn't, and you're going to get there some people saying that we could do this regenerative agriculture, but that's not, again, what I would rather do, since I don't have a um, strong enough understanding of that science, I have to go with the consensus of those scientists, yeah. you know, and th- they're saying that we should be cutting out animals and... Um, that you know the regenerative farming of animals is not the way to go in terms of that we should be shifting towards more plant-based diets including the ipcc the international the uh international panel on panel on climate change is suggesting that we should be shifting towards more plant-based diets purely from an environmental uh, perspective mm-hmm. and again i mean even if you're going to eat some some meat just reducing that by two-thirds so say you have one right you know equivalent of what totally. meal you know i mean that two-thirds of of the agriculture you know what we see it in south america is horrendous what they're doing especially as a lot of that meat is feeding you know a lot of the processed places that end up in fast food and you know so yeah. we can have a, a direct impact you know and, and again bringing it locally without waiting for some politician to push some motion that's going to force some company, <clears throat> we can vote with our dollars. Like totally. if every single person stopped going to McDonald's tomorrow, they would shut down, you know, within a year. Yeah. And I'm not saying demonize McDonald's, but I love the way they're being forced to now bring more, you know, seemingly healthy things. They're still not, you know, right. the best. But I think people misunderstand the power that we have. And we all look to the top of these people in the White House, like, oh, change our country. That they're the top of this pyramid. We're the base. And if enough of us get pissed off and be like, I'm tired of my kids, you know, school feeding them shit, you know, and it, I just, it drives me. It's, it's, we have so much power with so much potential if we just join together instead of argue and fix the most obvious things first and then work our way out. Totally. Yep. Yeah. Power to the people. all right well then let's transition because i know we are getting a little late now um the first book uh, question i love to ask people is there a book that you love to recommend it can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different Hmm. yeah i mean i think uh you know on this topic i think uh how not to die by dr gregor Gregor. people are saying what uh you know um it's not how to not die, right? Because people are saying, oh, you've got to die. Yeah, it's not, how, it's not how to not die. It's how not to die, right? So he looks at the leading causes of death and, and, and how they relate to, to diet. And then he's now coming out with a book called How Not to Diet, which I haven't read yet, but it'll be interesting to see. Because uh, I really think he does a deep dive into the, into the research. So yeah, How Not to Die, I think, is a great book. And it inspired my dad as well. Um, you know, after I talked to him, he talked to Dr. Esselstyn. Uh, my dad's read that book twice now, so... Yeah, I think that's a great book. Brilliant. Okay, we're just quickly talking about that. So in the movie, your dad has a heart attack. Um, you know, he has stents put in. He switches to a plant base. So here we are now quite a bit later. How's he doing? He's doing really well. I just saw him last week, actually. I flew back to England just for a couple of days to do some press. <clears throat> and um, yeah, he seems to be doing really well. You know, not it's not 100% on it, maybe like 90, 95%. But I think, again, that shift can make a massive difference. He looks healthier to me. And again, he was exercising before and he was eating, 
what I would have previously considered a pretty healthy diet, but he seems to be doing better eating, you know, the vast majority of his calories from plant foods. Brilliant. All right. Next question. Is there a movie that you love? Got to be Enter the Dragon, I think. If you, if I can't choose the game changers, of course. <laughs> well, we're going to uh, talk about the game changers at the moment. So yeah, so but, I, you know, I Enter the Dragon. You know, it's just in terms of martial arts films, I think it's to me it's the, the top film. Right, and then speaking of, of of action movies, one of my other f- heroes when I was young was Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. um, and obviously Schwarzenegger. I actually doubled. I was a stunt double for. When I say a double, I worked in the Terminator 2 show in Universal oh, wow. Studios. And I was the bad guy, the, the motorcycle cop, Robert Patrick's oh, wow. character. Um, but, you know, he had Arnold back in it as well. So how did you get involved with those guys? Uh, so Arnold is buddies with Jim Cameron. You know, they did the Terminator together, which sort of really um, boosted Arnold's career. And, and Arnold's into plant-based eating for both uh, health and but also for the environment. And again, he's not vegan. You know, people say, oh, well, Arnold's not vegan. He's still, he's never really drank milk, cow's milk. He thinks it's for babies. I mean, I'd probably take a step further and say it's for baby cows. But, um, and he's cut down his meat, sorry, he's cut down his meat consumption by 80%. Um, So I think, uh, you know, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, but, you know, he's into the message. And I think it's important that he gets across, you know, his message is, it's marketing, you know, you've been lied to, you don't need it. He, li- he likes the taste of steak still. So like, if you like the taste of it, then eat it. Mm-hmm. But like, that, that doesn't mean that it's healthy or you need it to grow muscle or maintain muscle or whatever else. And I think it's important coming from basically the godfather of muscle and bodybuilding, you know, to say that, say, I used to believe this, then I realized it was marketing. And he's done a lot of his own research. And, and again, he's, um, you know, again, doesn't have to be all or nothing is his message as well. Just trying to shift in a more plant-based direction. Jackie Chan, uh, again, uh, I think because yeah, he was friends with Jim Cameron. And again, I don't, th- don't think he's completely vegan. He's into the environment, you know, like on set. Um, apparently in Jackie's films, if you get a cup, you know, on the first day, a plastic cup, instead of throwing it away, write your name on it, use it the whole time. Uh, so he's into the environment and, you know, he's into his health probably as he's getting older. Uh, so he's eating more plant-based and uh, believes in the message. Brilliant. All right, so then, well, speaking of the Game Changers, is there another documentary that you love? You spoke of The Cove. Are there any other ones? Um, I'm trying to think of uh, some things that I might... Uh, have you seen Get Me Roger Stone? No. That's a, that's an interesting documentary. Um, you know, about how he's aided uh, a lot of the... Uh, helping getting a lot of the presidents into power, including Donald Trump. Oh, is that that, <clears throat> that kind of religious society? No, no it's not religious. One? He's just an advisor, um, okay. a political advisor that I think also got into trouble recently. I haven't really followed it, but it was, a, it was an interesting documentary to see how, you know, strings are pulled. Uh, um, the Great Hack was a great one as well. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't yeah, seen that. Yeah, that was really good. Um, looking at the influence of... Cambridge Analytica on the Brexit and on the presidential election. Really amazing how they're tracking people's data and using that and doing tens of thousands of different types of ads to different individuals to make them vote in a certain way. I think I did see that because yeah. that sounds very. It's very. It's pretty recent. Uh, it's a Netflix documentary. Yeah, I probably did then because I tend to watch a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was that was great as well. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, okay, so then next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? 
Um, I mean, Damien Manda's great from the film. <clears throat> you know, the special forces sniper. And then the other the other guy that's really interesting is uh, Paul de Gelder. He was also uh, he actually worked with Damien, so he was special forces in Australia as well. But he lost his leg and his arm uh, in a shark attack, and now he's doing Shark Week with the Discovery Channel. He'll skydive in. I yeah. follow him on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy, and uh, funnily enough, he also happens to be plant based. But um, but but beyond that, he's got some interesting stories, and his mindset is very interesting. Uh, he'd be. Uh, really interesting person to talk to i think excellent well thank you all right so the last question before we go over where people can find the film and um you know contact you what do you do to decompress when you're not making documentaries and training <laughs> just e- exercise honestly like i feel like exercise is so key for not just for like physical fitness but for stress reduction and i love you know jujitsu grappling to me is like one of the best things i could do because Anything where you're like fully focused and you can't think about anything else. <clears throat> like when someone's trying to choke you or break your arm, <clears throat> it, it's pretty difficult to be thinking about the mortgage payment or, you know, what you, you know, the interview you've got the next day or, you know, money issues, or, you know, whatever it is. I think uh, doing jujitsu is, um, is one of the best things for me. Brilliant. All right, so then where can people find The Game Changers? Yeah, so the film's available on, I mean, basically any platform you could basically think of. It's on Amazon, it's on uh, Netflix, on iTunes, Vimeo. Uh, again, it'll soon be on DVD and Blu-ray. And, uh, and and also we're doing screenings now. So we're starting to, you know, it's like 4,000 screening requests we've had. So if people want to organize a screening in their community or their business, we're going to have something online where you can sort of follow the protocol and, uh, be able to do that and for some places it's it's you know there's no charge at all and um for, for large businesses there are but there is for a licensing fee but yeah just uh, trying to get as many people to see it as possible and then all the resources and recipes and shopping tips and tips how to you know make the change towards more plant-based eating is on gamechangersmovie.com the uh social media is uh game Changers movie on facebook and on instagram and gc movie on twitter and then if you want to follow me uh, personally, uh, it's uh, Lightning Wilkes, W-I-L-K-S, uh, on Instagram. Brilliant. Now, I, I love the film. You know, I know, again, there was that discussion, like trying to debunk it. The, for me, I've seen so many people who have been inspired to look at how they eat. Um, some of my members in my CrossFit gym have come to me like, James, we're doing this now. I've already dropped 10 pounds in a week. So again, it's inspiring people to he- eat well. You know, I mean, I think Chris talks about the devils and the details. Sometimes, you know, just forget the details. Just look at the big picture, regardless of your experience, your interpretation, like whether it's, you know, what the health as we were talking about before or folks over knives, everyone's going to have a different interpretation. But if it's inspiring you to look at how you eat and improve it, then you you guys have won. I tell you now, you've already won. For me, the number of people that have been inspired by it, will they stay vegan, you know, full vegan the rest of their life? Who knows? It depends on what happens to them. Right. But if you're going to improve the health of the nation, to me, it's it's great because I see a whole bunch of people arguing, doing absolutely fucking nothing to to improve. You know, we've got a very very sick nation that we need to to bring up. So I want to thank you for making the film. Yeah, no, thanks, and thanks for having me on the opportunity. I mean, I think the main thing for me is if people just look at it and open their eyes a little bit and sort of understand that you know what they've been led to be uh, believed to be true 
maybe you know it's really not true it's based on industry influence and if people just start eating more whole plant foods i think that would be a win you know for most people uh, and however far they want to take it is great um but you know do your own research dig into it a little bit you know make some changes and see how you feel yeah and actually it's funny because you mentioned earlier about starting the film and you know waiting for perfection i think mm. that's the perfect example yeah you know if if it resonates with you then then just start change something yeah know, i mean i might take you people used to come and check out my uh, mma gym which i sold because i was getting too busy but um they'd say oh well i'm gonna wait till i get in shape and then i'll come down and, and then i'll come down and train and they never end up showing up it's like no you get in shape by just coming down like yeah it's gonna you're gonna suffer a little bit when you first come down so you're gonna ache a little bit the next day or whatever but just get in and do it and just you know again it doesn't it's not all or nothing just start incorporating like more plants maybe you you're, you're having less meat on the plate and more plants or maybe having some plant-based meals that you like uh and to me i think that's uh, that's a win absolutely well thank you so much for taking what's well, almost two hours now talking to the audience yeah well thanks again for the opportunity 